Welcome to Lehigh Insider. My name is Benor Ayamvem, and it's a new season. <laughs> Lehigh Insider is now on its fourth season. We've been running this now for four semesters, and I thank you for coming back. I thank you for being here. To start off this season, I'm joined today by Greg Scutches, who was at Lehigh for 15 years and retired at the end of the last academic year. So the 2022-2023 academic year ended with the retirement of Greg Scutches. Greg was the co-founder of the TRAC program, which stands for Teaching, Research, and Communication program. And he was the director of writing across the curriculum here at Lehigh. TRAC is an incredible program, which basically takes a group of students and has them serve as writing mentors to the courses that they are assigned to. So each track fellow is assigned to a course and it could be like an engineering course or chemistry. It could be an English course, history course. But in those courses, the track fellows read the students writing and guide them through the writing process. Track fellows often describe the program itself as transformative and its effect on other students, you know, the students in the courses as well has been pretty incredible. So Greg and I talk about track and we talk about his beliefs about higher education and we talk about his retirement. And I hope you have as much fun listening as we did recording this. And here is Greg Scutches. So since you're most recognizable as founder of Track, I feel like we should start talking about Track okay. first. Okay. Just as quickly as possible, breeze through what Track okay. is because that's not the point of the interview. The point of the interview is GREG. Okay. Greg. Okay. <laughs> My understanding of Track: getting a group of uh, high-achieving students together, and they are trained in a four-credit seminar. You're nodding, great. Yeah. <laughs> in a four-credit seminar, mm-hmm. um, where they learn how to be a mentor, how to assist other students, ETC, improve their own writing. And then once that is completed, they are assigned to courses Mm -hmm. where they end up mentoring the students and guiding them through their own writing processes. That's my understanding. How'd I do? You did excellent. Uh, There's (laughs) one one little change I would make is that um, they actually, track fellows start working as track fellows while they're taking the course. Uh. So they don't, and and that's the decision we made. Some programs do it the other way around, some programs. Mm You do the training, and then you start working. Uh, early on, we felt that the course would be much more meaningful if you're working mm. at the same time. But also, it gives the course real meaning. Like, sometimes um, there'll be a, a track fellow who has a draft, for example, of a student paper, and they're struggling with how to respond, what kind of feedback to give. So we can, in the seminar, just say, okay, we're going we're gonna to talk about this paper today. If you can think back to 2008, mm-hmm. When you created track, because that's when mm-hmm. track was created, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what exactly did you have in mind for what this program could be? And what ingredients did you feel like were necessary at the time to make that idea come to life? Mm-hmm. Where did this idea come from? Mm-hmm. So I started here in 2006, and there was no writing across curriculum program prior to that. So I was hired to establish a writing across curriculum program. Um, I knew when I came that, or I hoped when I came, that a writing fellows program would be part of that. And the reason I wanted that is if it was a big deal to become a writing fellow, then that would kind of raise the profile of writing. It would, you know, the writing would become a bigger deal by virtue of that. And I think that sort of happened a little bit. Um, mm. And that's what we said to the first group of 15 fellows. We said, 
we don't really know what this can be. We think it can be great. We think it can be more than the way writing fellows programs are working at other institutions. And we hope you can show us what that might look like. And they took us seriously and they did. And that kind of set us on a course right from day one of a very student-centered program, student-led, student-centered. And I think that was probably the smartest thing we did. It seems to me like a lot of the the training for a track mm-hmm. is more like psychological than it is really about this is how you become a writer and a teacher and you're now like does that make sense? It does. It does. It's I mean it's about personal growth. Right? Yeah. Um and but you learn a lot too. You know, about writing, about language, mm-hmm. you know, sure. about technology, about research. But, you know, I think that it's, it's about the students. It's about their growth. It's not just about them hitting certain benchmarks and mm. expectations that we have. Um, and as a result, my personal opinion is that they learn more. Yeah. They learn more even in the traditional way, right? Because, it, because it's, we know it's, and they know, it's about their growth, not their ability to perform for somebody else. Mm. I'm just, I'm wondering... When you know that a student is ready to be a mentor to other students, especially since they start working during the training, but they've never been track fellows right. at Lehigh University right. before to Lehigh students. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you know that the track training has been successful? Are there times that it's not? Like, do you think you've ever made a mistake in selecting a student to be a track fellow? And how do you deal with that mistake? How do you ensure that, that your students will make good track fellows or do you not are you not concerned with that since part of it is trusting the students uh, you know this the program is supported by the university right i mean track fellows get paid right i mean it's, mm. it's, it's my job so those are valuable resources so there is an obligation to make sure that track fellows do good work okay okay but i feel like we kind of shelter them we buffer them from that we you know we don't talk to them about that kind of pressure we just create the space for them to learn and do good work have we had fellows, have we chosen fellows who were not great for the program? Yes. Very often, they kind of self-select out. And there have been times when we had to select them out because they weren't doing the kind of work that they needed to do. You kick people out of track? We have, yeah. yeah. It's usually, so what happens is we, if someone's not doing well, there's a lot of opportunity to grow. And it's, uh-huh. not like it's, it's not like right away. Um, there have been a few times when it just... It's been a long time since this happened where yeah. someone just really just wasn't a good choice and it was obvious early on. And um, so in most cases, though, we try to make sure that you know they learn, they start to appreciate the work, and they get better. And we've had many cases where, I mean, there have been cases where a mentor fellow teaching a seminar thought one of the fellows should not continue the program. And there have been times when I've said, well, okay, I hear you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer this student another chance in the spring. And there have been times where I've actually have met with one of those students like mm-hmm. every week I said you can stay with the program we're going to offer you a fellowship again in the spring but we're going to meet every Tuesday and we're going to talk and there's a couple of cases where that was very gratifying for me where those actual fellows went on to be stars but I guess what I here's here's what I would say I would say that I don't believe in laziness as a reason I, I don't think that people just say oh I don't care I don't want to do good I, I'm okay with just you know mm. I think really? that I, yeah, I do. I think it's usually fear or mm. insecurity, and it's the instructor's job to connect with that student to make them to help them to see that you know cultivating a voice is really important. Because mm. I real I, I mean the thing that's driven me 
in all these years, I, I personally believe that um, everybody wants to have a voice. I think everybody is in some ways saying, you know, like, I'm here, damn it, listen to me. You know, I want to be heard. I want my ideas, my thoughts to be taken seriously. I want to be that kind of person. And so the idea that students are lazy, I think you see less and less of that. Um, when the experience is meaningful for them. And, I, I, you know, there are exceptions, of course. You know, I mean, you know, there's, there's certainly the varying skill levels. Not everybody <laughs> has a high, the same skills. But I think it's such an idiosyncratic thing that, uh, you know, if students have not done well, they've, they've not done well in this, once again, this role, performative role of producing documents that please teachers. What kind of feedback do you receive from students? What I hear about you is overwhelmingly positive, right? I'm sure you know that. How does that affect the way that you feel about yourself and about your work? Well, it's I would be lying if I didn't, didn't say it was very gratifying. Mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, Benora, and this is, this is going to sound like false humility, <laughs> but I never really feel like I deserve that. And when I get that kind of praise, I think I'm going to work harder because next time someone says something like that to me, I'm going to feel like I deserve it, you know? I'm very gratified by it. I, I think, though, that it's hard. You know, it's it's. There's a lot that goes into that. It's hard to understand what's really being said, what what experience has really happened. You know, and I guess I would also say that you know our education system has established a pretty low bar. So just being genuine, just being honest, you know, just really caring, mm-hmm. even if you're not very skilled, makes a huge difference. With track, mm-hmm. your baby, mm-hmm. did you feel like you had to grieve? Like, are you are you missing track at all? And just grieving your baby oh. and uh, had, no, saying you know goodbye. What? How does it feel? Um, so I, I I worked really hard in the last year. I, I just wanted. I knew. I, so my wife retired in 2019. Mm. She was a teacher, and I knew I was going to retire at the end of 2023. So this You've is known I've, like I've known for I've known for four years. Yeah, and so I really. I wanted to, the metaphor I've been using is run through the tape, right? Just, yes. Just really finish strong. And I feel like we had a good year. I feel like, I, actually, I think we had an r- excellent year. I'm ready to move on because there are other things I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the track program, I'm really happy in that. I, I think that Yvonne Lee, who's taken the reins, is an w- excellent choice. I think she's going to really, I think track's best days are still in front of it. Um, and that's really nice to know or, mm. to, f- or to feel anyway. And also the fact that you know I'm going on to do things that I really want to do makes me. I, I mean, actually, I'm not at all sad. Mm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm. You know, certainly I'll miss students. Yeah. Certain things I will miss, of course, but that will be replaced by the, the excitement I have over the things I want to do now. Yeah. Okay. Enough about track, but still, still talking about Lehigh. I know that before you left, you also got involved with the strategic plan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you seemed pretty optimistic about the strategic plan which was which honestly made me also feel optimistic because i think you're never afraid to be critical of Mm -hmm. things in general especially higher ed so i'm really curious about why you are or why it seemed you were optimistic i don't know if that's still true about the strategic plan and even within that optimism if you see any holes with the way it was set up as of when you left and what sets it apart in terms of how it wants to go about education in the future? Well, um, the reason that I was optimistic and really excited to participate uh-huh. was it just, 
there was a seriousness about the project that I sensed, I think, coming from um, Nathan Urban, the provost, and Chris Cook. Um, but for me, especially Nathan, they asked me to be on the Education with Purpose team. And I think they asked me, knowing mostly that I was very critical. <laughs> you know, I, th- I, th- I think the higher, not just of Lehigh, but of higher education. Yes. Um, so I think the fact that they invited me to participate um, suggested to me that they, they were valuing critical perspectives, which suggested authenticity mm. and, and a genuine desire to improve the student experience and learning here at Lehigh. And the progress was very in-depth. I mean, we talked to so many departments, got feedback from as much as we could, met students, different organizations on campus. Um, we had many, many, many meetings in the Education with Purpose group to try and formulate you know, the best plan, the best advice we could for improving the student experience of learning. Um, the piece that I would have liked to have seen added would be an emphasis on making room for students to learn together with and from one another. And that is is the isn't part of the plan. So that was disappointing for me, and, and I, I still think it's a, a serious mistake because, and this is, I hope this works, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say anything derogatory at all, but we want to at once improve research at Lehigh and also improve learning. And they're often at odds, right? A faculty member mm. who has, a high, has to do a lot of time into research, traditionally that takes time away from teaching. I mean, you can only do so much. Teaching writing, that giving feedback on writing, helping students become better writers, whatever the discipline, chemistry, philosophy, management, is very, very time intensive. And faculty are under a tremendous amount of pressure to do research. And so what I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful, uh, and this is why I'm just, I've stepped away, but I'm hopeful that Lehigh can raise the research profile, increase the amount of research output that we do as, at the same time as we improve teaching. We'll see. I, th- I thought mm. that peer learning would have helped because that would take away some of the pressure on faculty. I see. And let students learn, create a, an environment where students can teach and learn from and with one another. Would alleviate the time of the faculty. As a matter of fact, it's even better. So <laughs> I think students learn better from one another often than when they do from the stage on the stage. Um, young, I mean, if y- young people can come up with more ideas, right? You know, if you say, okay, here's a problem. Let's just come up with as many ideas as we can. I guarantee you a group of students will come up with more ideas on how to solve a problem than one faculty member, right? Mm. And, you know, cultivating and nurturing that ability to come up with ideas, to test them out, to argue for the best one with one another. I mean, that's learning. That's education. Learning how to do well on a test, it does a couple of things, right? Number one is it tells a student, first and foremost, that the reason to learn is not for the world, it's not for your life, it's to for a test. So that automatically like puts it into a certain position within the student's thinking. That why should I carry this over? I should clear my mind of this so I can do well on my next test, right? You know, there's no real reason to know it. Since we're kind of on the topic, and since also y- you have so much to say mm-hmm. about higher education, okay. I figured I'm going to keep this more open-ended, just... What, what do you have to what, what what do you think about higher ed? What are the problems? Yeah, uh, I, you know I think that they're traditional, and I think maybe there was a time when it did the work it was supposed to do, but I'm not sure about that either. Mm. I think that it's always had a problem. Are we passing along a trend tra- a tradition, or are we cultivating students' abilities to think and learn, get new ideas? I think we do more of the former. 
Mm -hmm. more of the, this is how we do things around here. The other thing that we ignore is that higher education in general is probably the single biggest driver of wealth and income inequality in our country. So, for example, um, the acceptance rate. I mean, an institution kind of brags about how many students they reject. I mean, that's, that's, that's status is how many students mm. don't get to come, you know. You know, the old aristocracy has kind of been replaced by a new aristocracy, mm -hmm. you know. And so higher institutions of higher education um, are not only, I used to think that they, you know, had to do this because of our free market capitalist culture, but now I realize they're kind of one of the main drivers of it. So that's something that's not discussed, and I think it's something, you know, I mean, think about it. We should be not trying to teach fewer students or to select, we should be trying to teach all students and give all students a great experience instead of having elite institutions where mostly the children of rich elite families come then to go on and get rich, you know, these high paying jobs at the other side. Um, and of course there's also been this, you know, this tradition of legacy admissions and, and so forth. And of course then there were the admission scandals where people tried to, you know, buy students ways, students um, admission. So I think that until we honestly come to terms with that, higher education is, is gonna struggle um, to really have good impact, the, the impact that it should be having on our culture. If you had your own competition, how do you think Lehigh is ranking in, in, in your own evaluation of what makes a good learning institution? It's hard for me to say this without being seemingly unfairly critical. But I don't think you get to a leadership position at an institution like Lehigh by being willing to take risks. By the time you get to be senior administration, you get there by being risk averse mostly. Uh, big blunders are not forgiven. So we try everything we do to not make them. So if I, when I ask you, um, how does Lehigh compare? Are you basically saying they're all the same? <laughs> like for all that, they're all like... Uh, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You have your bachelor's, master's, and PhD, mm -hmm. right? You've also been an educator for most of your life, mm -hmm. working in a university in higher education. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to placed these these two things of you being very critical about higher education and the way it works and also being someone who is engaging and part of that process mm -hmm. and who has maybe seen like received some of the benefits of it yourself mm -hmm. as well how yeah. are you how do you make that connection i have i love education i love higher education and because of that fact i feel obligated to make it better and to the only way to do that is by being critical of its faults I feel that in my job as director of writing across curriculum, if we had a kind of interesting nexus of um, not just teaching and not just and, and certainly not being an administrator and also not having power, right? I was not in a position where I had power. Mm. I was trying to bring about you know significant change in an institution from a very low level, and so that that kind of made me subject to the winds of power the way they really <laughs> work, you know. So people would say things to me. Um, when I was trying to get more writing into a course that they would never say publicly, you know, why would I put more writing in my course? Um, I remember my first meeting with um, a dean, uh, dean of the College of Business, uh, Georgette. Uh, I know Georgette. She said to me two things at that my first meeting with her. I went to her to introduce myself, to say what I was about. She said, number one, 
I don't want my faculty wasting their time grading student writing, undergraduate student writing. And number two, undergraduates don't write well anyway. And I, I, I don't feel like I'm speaking out of school to say that. I think I'm being a tattletale because <laughs> she told me that. Like mm -hmm. I was there in my official job as director of writing across curriculum to make an appeal to her that I was going to come. I, I was so excited about her arrival on campus. <laughs> and uh, I, I reached out, and that was what I was told. But it wasn't the only, it was meant, there's a lot of experiences I had like that. You know, I was told like almost in essence, like who do you think you are to think you can, you know, bring this kind of change to Lehigh. But even though that was my job, I mean, I was hired to support and expand writing uh, um, across the curriculum. That was my job. And it's not just so Lehigh, not just Lehigh, it's across yeah. higher education. Yeah. And when people come at you with the word realistic or say that you, uh, or overestimating undergraduate students and your views are unrealistic. Do you ever take those thoughts seriously? Like, is is realism something that you are ever concerned uh, with? I am confused. I am um, accused of being an idealistic yeah. person. <laughs> um, well, here's the thing about that is we don't really know about the alternative because if you think about it, higher education is an ongoing experiment without a control group. We don't know what it would be like to do it any other way, right? But but I but I will say that I think I am a realist. I feel pretty confident that there is a better way, and I, and and I think not to make too much of this, but I think the track program has shown me that when I talk about students wanting to work, how how devoted they can be to something that is is meaningful and gratifying. And you think about that. We're talking about learning. Why can't it be a joy? Why does it have to be this no pain no gain gutted out thing? Why can't it be fun? Why can't it be? engaging why can't it be different you know i think we're just afraid to try afraid to take the risk i'm sure you've been asked a lot why you decided to retire and you've given answers mm -hmm. about there's so many things you wanted to do and you know it just felt like or, or this was just the time mm -hmm. time to time to retire but um i really wonder how you knew that now was the time and you know what you were thinking when you decided that specifically this is the time especially since especially since like you said you didn't really feel successful like and you don't you don't see this as like prematurely especially strategic planning just started you were part of that it seemed like some change was on the horizon in terms of what you've been trying to do yeah i mean there was a lot of temptation to stick around right mm. i think strategic planning was a very serious minded endeavor i, I think that also there's some changes afoot um, in other ways at Lehigh, they, but I know I've heard a lot of good things about the possibilities. So yeah, there will be a, there will be a, a lot of reasons to to continue, um, and just to you know spend more time with students and spend more time with, with you know the just the work that I've been doing here. Um, I will be sixty seven next month. I'm s I still have my health. I, I think. You know, I think I'm still cognitively, you know, on the ball. I, I actually feel like I'm more willing to entertain new and different ideas now than ever. I feel like mm. I'm a more radical thinker than I've ever been. Um, and I want to I, I want to use that, you know, before it goes. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, there's some writing I really am serious about. And then as as we've discussed, you know, I, I like to paint. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I, I want to pursue that. So, so is that kind of what you imagined that retirement would look like for you? Is just to spend time doing these things? I can already tell you what my it's like. I, I yes, walk I, me I, through I, a day in the yeah, life. So I write in the morning and paint in the afternoon. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, well, I I get up at six still, you know, mm. and I um, meditate. I, do, I meditate. I do yoga. I take a loop on the bike. 
mm. um, you know, five or one loop, five miles, or two two loops, ten miles. Um, and I actually set workout several times throughout the day, a little mini workout. <laughs> um, take a break at, at noon, and then and then switch to to painting in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's th- th- mm-hmm. I'm very very excited about that. And is this what you imagined it would be like? It is. It matches. So yeah. far, it's been really great. Yeah. Really, really great. It, it almost seems like too good to be true. How good it is, mm. you know. Um, I think if you if you, if you have such high hopes, very often you'll be disappointed. Yeah. You know. So so far, not. Okay. Now, now I'm just like kind of asking you like random okay. questions about like I saw your TED talk about the stages of life. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the idea of the talk yeah. was right now as you are because i was uh, a, a little while ago how are you thinking about aging and and what stage of life are you yeah. in right now based on yeah. on your own thoughts about that yeah i mean like i said i'll be 67 next month i'm getting old <laughs> you know there's there, i mean there's no denying that it's not that i'm not doing it gracefully but i do think that you know by exercising and by staying active you know you can you, you can stay in the game mm-hmm. you know um and that's what I hope to do. I mean, I hope to get as many years of productive, active living mm-hmm. as I can. And I'm willing to, you know, eat a plant-based diet. I'm willing to get up in the morning and exercise and, and meditate mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, take care of myself. Um, I'm not really afraid of death, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, I mean, getting old is going to be not fun, you know, but I'm coming to terms with that as well. Uh, I, just, I, I'm ho- I, I think I, I'm working on having a healthy approach to that, to saying... You know, there's things I can do now that I soon won't be able to do. Um, and there'll come a time when that trend will accelerate. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality of, of life. You know, trying to embrace it as part of life. And in the meantime, doing whatever I can to stay productive, to contribute, to have my days be full and meaningful. That's that's the effort. Other than you dealing with the physical aspects of aging, I think one of the things that you uh, had brought up in, in the talk was... Uh, uh, how old would you would you be if you didn't know how old yeah. you were or something like yeah. that? Yeah. W- what's yeah. your answer to that right now? You know what? It's funny. Like, every once in a while, I'll see, like, I, so I will go into a room, maybe a waiting room in a, in a whatever, and I'll think, man, like, look at all these old people. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll look again, I'll think, actually, I think I'm the oldest person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> So even when I look in the mirror, I, I know that I'm an older guy, but I, I still, I don't see an old person. I don't, don't feel like an old person. Mm. And maybe that's... What, is it, what does it feel like to be an old person? You don't feel yeah. that way. I, 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 you know, feeling like uh, it's time to wind down. You know, it's, yeah, time to take it easy. Time to, um, you know, not have, be excited about goals uh, mm. and things you want to do. And, 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 it's a fine line, I think, between resisting it and, and denying it, and mm-hmm. actually ch- and, and knowing it's there and just doing <laughs> the best you can anyway, mm-hmm. which is what I think, I, which, which is what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't have any delusions. Mm-hmm. I don't think. <laughs> I mean, I know what's coming. You know, um, but I, I'm really hell bent on doing the best I can. You know, to to live until I die, basically. <laughs> and the other thing I've realized when you think about that way is think as an older person like I have less time and, and sort of I guess in one way I can say I do it's, it's likely that 
you have a lot more time than I do. But if, it, if you, there's another way of thinking about it is that neither of us have the future. Mm-hmm. All either of us have is right mm-hmm. now. Right? It's, it's always now. It's mm-hmm. always now. So that's, a, that's, I think, a really helpful way of thinking about it, to think mm-hmm. all anybody has is a present moment. I'm not going to worry about whether I'm going to be alive in 15 years. I'm having a hell of a time right now with Bunuar talking about cool shit. You know? so, so, and I think that can be cultivated. So we're, we're going to end soon, but I don't want to without talking about your family a little bit because I can tell that they mean a lot to you. Mm-hmm. Your incredible wife who supported you to, to uh, returning to grad school yeah. and your three sons. Yes. How has it been now being retired to spend time with all of them and even in general, like what's, what's the relationship yeah. like with your family? Is it modeled after the family that you had growing up? It's, it's modeled like way against the family I had oh. growing up. Listen, I, I view my childhood as a negative exemplar or something mm. too. Um, but no, um, my wife and the boys, they're just wonderful and they mean so much to me. And that's just hard to avoid cliches <laughs> when I'm saying about this. But, um, you know, our, I think one of the things that make Anne and I both happy is that our three sons are like, they're, they're, they're all their own best friends. Like, and um, I went through a real crisis actually not when they went away to college. We became empty nesters. That was hard. But for some reason, when they graduated from college and were moving on into adult life, um, I went. Into, I got into a real funk. I mean, really kind of existential crisis. I just thought that part of life is over. It's never going to be the same. But then I discovered how great it is to have adult children. <laughs> to actually have a whole new, different relationship with yeah. them. You know, you know I, having adult children is very cool relationship you can have with them okay it was important for you to finish strong at lehigh and you you said that the best year was the final year and it did keep on getting better with every single year you wanted to run through the tape yes and also you don't feel fully successful with everything you set out to achieve right you know all of these things Mm -hmm. in general how are you how do you how do you think about the past 15 years that's really that's a really excellent question. <laughs> I do second guess myself. I think there are th- decisions, things I could have done differently. I try not to, you know, be obsessed with regret, uh, mm-hmm. but I think I could have made some better choices along the way, and I regret not making better choices. But that's that's behind me, right? I I feel like I did the best I could with what I knew. I really tried hard, like I really really tried hard. I know. <laughs> you know we know. You know, like and and. So flaws and all, you know, I I think I made the best of my limited abilities. So in that sense, that kind of tempers the regret that I might feel. It softens that sense of regret. I think this this next one will be the last question. I think the biggest theme I've noticed throughout knowing you and knowing your track fellows is just that people change so much. And you are uh, the captain of change and you've been through so much chai and change in your life you've embraced it going to grad school at 35 and completely changing your career path um and i just i hear the stories too of like people who thought their lives were going one way and then maybe through track completely went down some other path you know since the primary demographic i guess of this is students what can you say to us something you've learned to brace us for this journey of change that is ahead of us. I'm still working on it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the best thing I can say is to know what your values are and be guided by them. Mm. 
and stay true to them, you know. And they may change, but whatever they are at the moment, you will feel better when your head hits the pillow each night and you live the best you could be true to your body. Thank you, Grant. How do you feel? This was this good. has been a long it was, time. This was fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Really, it's it a pleasure to be with you. Bernard. And you ask how you were doing, I give you a plus. Oh, I don't know what you're gonna do with that grade, <laughs> but that's can, what can you're you getting. You put that in paper. I'll hang it on the wall. <laughs> GPA 4.0. <laughs> well, I I really I really am so grateful to you for joining me today. My pleasure. <laughs> My pleasure. Completely. Okay. And so with that, this has been Lehigh Insider. You'll be hearing from me again in two weeks if all things go well. And with that, goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Lehigh Insider will be back to you in two weeks. Catch us every other Friday on the Brown and White Spotify. Lehigh Insider is created by Bonor Ayambem and produced by the Brown and White with music produced by DJ Zen. Find Lehigh Insider on Instagram for bonus exclusive content at Lehigh Insider. And while you're there, follow the Brown and White at LU Brown White on Instagram. You can also visit our website at www.thebrownandwhite/lehighinsider. This has been Benor Ayambem, and I will see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye.